Yeah, this is a story I don't know if you often will read to your kids at bedtime. Uh, there's some difficult things here. And uh, like, I, like I've said a number of times as we've gone through the book of Genesis, um, we don't shy away from the hard stories. And, and often I've, I've shared with you, it's often these hard and difficult stories that often are the ones that, after I, I, that I have to wrestle with. I have to wrestle with God, like, what are you doing with these things? And uh, often that's where the treasure comes, is when you're wrestling with God. And uh, that the, the Bible doesn't shy away from the ugliness of humanity, that we do ugly things, and, um, and, and we find that as we go through this chapter as well. Genesis 19 is, as I said, and kind of introduced, it's, it's the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But as I was studying this passage this week and kind of reading through, I realized it, it struck me how much this this chapter is not about Sodom and Gomorrah and about the inhabitants of those cities as much as it is about Lot and, and his two daughters. This is the last chapter that deals with this man Lot. It kind of sums up Lot's trajectory and Lot's story in the scripture. Lot was Abraham's nephew, right? If you remember from earlier in the book. And Abraham, in this, these chapters that we've been looking at, Abraham, if you remember, has been presented as the man of faith. Right? He's a man of failings as well, but he's presented in Scripture as that pilgrim of faith, um, though he also is a man of, of failings. But he is the man of faith who walks before God. Whereas Lot has been presented through these chapters and through the kind of story of church, the interpretation of the church, Lot has been presented as the wayward believer. The believer who has strayed from the path of walking with God to take up residence among the lost. And so in that sense, Lot is a complex character through the scripture. So in the New Testament, for example, the Apostle Peter calls Lot a righteous man and says that that Lot righteous man was greatly distressed. It says, quote, the righteous man was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, which was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so Peter, in the New Testament, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls Lot, even though Lot is dwelling in Sodom, he, he, Peter describes that he's a righteous man who was tormented by what he saw around him, yet Lot could not, what we'll see in this passage, Lot could not bring himself to leave. So he's a complex character. He's a, a wayward believer. And, and, and we, we see in this trajectory of Lot's wife, we see his waywardness. I, I mean, ever since his departure, ever, in Genesis chapter 13, Abram and Lot, Abram the uncle and Lot the nephew, they part ways. And it seems that ever since they parted ways, the inhabitants of Sodom have attracted Lot and latched on, in a sense, to his soul. And he, and he, he, he doesn't seem to ever be able to to get rid of its trap. And remember first, this is kind of the, this is my little descent into the valley. 
And this descent into the valley has a warning for all of us Christians. In Genesis 13, we first see Lot's attraction to the valley. He looks and he sees that the valley is well watered. And he says it's like the Garden of Eden or it's like Egypt. And he sees the well watered valley. He's attracted to it. He's attracted to its riches and prosperity. He was seeking after the things of the world. But remember very quickly, the, the valley he was seeing was at the top, the northern ridge. Most people think of it the northern edge of the Jordan, or sorry, of the Jordan River Valley, the northern part of the Dead Sea, which we call now the Dead Sea. But Sodom, most people think, were at the southern tip, the, the southern edges. So Lot was attracted first to the prosperity of the valley, but it says that he quickly moved his tents as far as Sodom, approaching the place where the text actually tells us as he does this, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so he's attracted first to the, you know, the outward prosperity, and then he approaches uh, the wickedness of the city. He then, in uh, chapter 14, we find he is now associated with the city and its inhabitants. He, remember chapter 14, uh, the, the armies of the north come and they sweep through, and Lot, in his association with the cities of the plain and Sodom, is actually taken away with the other inhabitants of Sodom in that uh, military campaign. So he has his association with Sodom in chapter 14. And by the time we get here to chapter 19, oh, and, and with that, there is a, something really sad. Remember, he was associated with the cities. He got swept away, and, Lot, and Abraham went after him to rescue him. Abraham hunted him down to, to rescue him from those northern kingdoms. And Abraham rescues him. And what happens Lot returns to Sodom. He, he, he continues his association with Sodom. But by the time we get to chapter 19, it's been about 15, at least 15 years later. Lot has now assimilated his life into the wicked structures of Sodom. He's, he's got a house there now, inside the city gates. He, he, it's not just that he's pitched his tent near there. His house, his dwelling place made out of stone is there in the city. And he's assimilated himself so far into the society of Sodom that he has some, it seems, that he has some um, important or prominent role in the city in that he's conducting his business in the city gate which was the place of the city's rule and commerce. And so that when the angels come to Sodom, Lot is right there in the city gate and welcomes them. He has, he's assimilated himself into the city. Though if Peter is saying, if what Peter is saying is true, he's tormented by what he sees around him. He, 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 at this point in his life, after 15 years of living in Sodom, you cannot tell the difference between Lot's wife and those around him in the city. Here's a man who, though he's called righteous, has routinely and insistently refused fellowship with the righteous, trading it for association with the wicked. And that's just setting out there is why this chapter, see, there's a way of reading this chapter, chapter 19, going, as the church today, going, 
Look at God's judgment on all those wicked men of Sodom. Yet this chapter is about Lot, the wayward. And so it's a warning to us and our brothers and sisters when we walk waywardly in that valley of sin. When we have forsaken our fellowship with the righteous for our association, for our affiliation, and for our assimilation with the wicked. And we're going to look at some of these things about living in the valley of sin. And, and this will be a warning to us and, and possibly, I hope, inspiring also compassion in us and inspiring us to fervent prayer for those among us who have forsaken fellowship with the righteous to dwell in the valley of sin. So the first thing that I see in this passage coming out is that when we live in the valley of sin, we know sin is dangerous. We know sin is deadly, yet we live near it anyway. So the angels come to Lot. Lot doesn't know that these men are angels, at least initially, but look at how urgently Lot presses these visitors to stay with them and then, and then to, to stay with him and then leave immediately, right? He doesn't just, in, he invites them to stay with them, but when they kind of give that little refusal, no, it's okay, we'll stay in the marketplace, uh, the Hebrew apparently is very, very, very strong. It would be like the English expression, he twisted their arm, right? He, he's like, do not stay in the open air. Come and stay with me. And then look what he says in verse 2, stay with me, so that you can rise up early and go on your way. Right? Lot's like looking out at the entrance to the city going, here you are, stay with me, don't stay out there, and get out of here as fast as you can. Okay? That's, Lot understands that Sodom is a dangerous place. Right? Lot understands Sodom is a dangerous place, and yet Lot has lived in Sodom for 15 years. He's, he's, he's the person who, um, you know, I, I, I think of this old guy I knew once. He, he lit up a cigarette in front of me, right? And he goes to me, he goes, I don't know, as a teenager, he's like, don't ever do this, kid. It'll kill your life while he's smoking in front of me. Right? The... This idea that, you know, we, we be, when we live in the valley of sin, and if we, you dwell there long enough, you may begin to see your life as a cautionary tale. Like, it's, it's hopeless for me to leave Sodom at this point. But, but, but if you see a younger Christian, you might say, hey, 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 don't, don't follow my example, learn from my mistakes, Right? And, and, and you say, you know, you know, do not do what I do while we continue to do it. If you would counsel someone else against following what you are doing or where you are going, just get out yourself. It's, it's a marker when you're in the valley if, 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 you're, if you're concerned that other people will not do the same thing that you are doing, yet you yourself are not concerned about your own complicity in doing it. Get out. So when we live in the valley, we know sin is deadly, but we live near it anyway. Lot, Lot is fearful for these men who have arrived in his city, but he will not flee himself. It will take a lot to get him out of Sodom. Secondly, 
When we live in the valley, our moral compromises, that what we think we're making these moral compromises, they are actually immoral sacrifices. So, so right, the men of the city come and they storm the house. They say, bring out these men that, that have come to you. And Lot goes, and, and this is, as I was reading before, if you're not familiar with this part of the story, some of you guys might have been, wow, what is he doing here? And Lot says, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as they please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Lot is, I mean, this is, Lot is putting forward his own daughters as a moral compromise that he is making with the men of the town who have surrounded his house. The, as I look out in your face, some of you guys are going, what? And, and that's what we are supposed to be like. Right? All the commentators will say this is a horrific thing that Lot does, that no commentator will uh, commend it. And, and, and some, if you read the commentary, some of the people will say, well, you know, uh, Middle Eastern hospitality is such that Lot would have had an obligation to protect these men who he's extended his hospitality toward in his house. He would have had an obligation to protect them. And so that's why he offers his daughters. Uh, to that, we, I think, would all say, who, do you know who else Lot had an obligation to protect? His daughters. Right? Like, he has a moral obligation to not give his daughters to these men to be, to be raped. And this compromise that Lot suggests to these men is probably the most telling evidence in the text that Lot has sacrificed long ago his moral authority, his moral integrity as he's living in Sodom. As he's living in Sodom, although his soul may have been tormented day by day by the unrighteousness that he sees behind, outside of him, his own integrity, his own morality, his own ethics have been corroded by Sodom. So, I mean, they have to be. To, in order to bring you to a point where you think this is a moral thing to do, to send your daughters out to this mob, this compromise he is making is a sacrifice, a immoral sacrifice. W.H. Griffith Thomas, a, the a pastor, observed, a ship in the water is perfectly right, but water in the ship would be perfectly wrong. The Christian in the world is right and necessary, but the world in the Christian is wrong and disastrous. And what he was talking about there is the small moral compromises we make that are actually sacrificing our integrity. Sacrificing our moral authority. Some commentators speaking on this, some pastors spoke about, the, you know, just thinking of our own lives, the sacrifices that we make to follow the patterns and the course and the thinking of this world. How, how do we sacrifice our children for the sake of appeasing the worldly values around us? We make these moral compromises. We, we say, well, I need to put food on my table, and so I neglect my children to pursue more and more and more hours 
in my workplace. We, we say, I mean, it might be a number of ways in which we, 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 we sacrifice our, either our integrity or we sacrifice even the moral upbringing of our children in order to make concessions to the culture around us. Parents, we need, we need to be very careful. We, we do live in a, in a wicked society. We live in an age of Sodom. And yet it, 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 is the moral, it, it is the most expedient thing to do to just give our children over to the schooling around us. And we've lost some of our kids in, in the process. We need to really carefully consider our engagement and our assimilation in the culture around us and those moral compromises that we make may in fact be sacrificing our own integrity or the lives around us. Closer to home, even in the evangelical movement, on his uh, podcast, The Briefing This Week, Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, addressed some controversies that even in the last couple of months have hit evangelical churches and institutions. He called it the Me Too moment has come to evangelicalism. He spoke of instances where evangelical churches or institutions have covered up abuse or not taken allegations of abuse seriously. And he's somber. It, it was one of the most, I listened to his uh, podcast, The Briefing, almost every day, and this is one of the most sad and somber posts I've ever heard him give. And in that post, he fears that American evangelicals have been so obsessed with winning the culture wars, but that we have not been as passionate to pursue purity and integrity within our own institutional structures. Specifically, he spoke about we have been so consumed as evangelicals in winning the culture wars lest we slide into the liberalism of Sodom that we have blinded ourselves or not been as passionate in regards to abuse and mistreatment of women and children within our institutions. And as I was reading this chapter this week, I said, man, isn't this exactly what isn't this the compromise that Lot makes? He sells out his daughters so that the men of Sodom outside the door do not win. We need to get our houses in order as we live in this world around us. We need to, we, we need to repent of moral compromise that we make. And, and the reason is that when we live in the valley, we are, the world hates us because of our, they see through it. So even though Lot has taken up, so even though Lot has lived among them for 15 years, even though Lot has assimilated himself into their society, he's, he's working at the gates of the city. And he has sacrificed his values to them and he's lived as a man of Sodom for some time. The, the, the words here are interesting. They say to him, when he's making this moral compromise to him, they say to him, get out of here. Stand back. 
And they say, this fellow came to sojourn. They still, after 15 years, they see him as a stranger dwelling among him. And they, they say he has the gall to be our judge. This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal with you worse than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and he is only saved by the angels coming, blinding everyone and bringing him back into the house. Even though he's taken up residence among them, sacrificed his values to them, lived as a man of Sodom for some time, they still see him as a stranger who's come to hypocritically judge them, and therefore they rage against him all the more when he doesn't let them have their way. This is why there is no such thing as a moral compromise that we can make with Sodom, because we would be sacrificing our integrity. And when we leave the high moral ground of God's law for moral compromise, we descend into the valley of situational ethics of relative morality in which we make arbitrary distinctions of what sins are better or worse than others, and we cannot be surprised when the world calls us out for judging them with sliding scales. So think of what, 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 what in Lot's eroded morality, Lot is considering that the non-consensual rape of his daughters would be less atrocious than the homosexual rape of these visitors who have come among him. He's making a sliding scale. He's making his own morality up in which this seems to be acceptable or a moral compromise. This seems to be unheard of. We can't let this happen. They're both damnable. And, and you can see why the people outside the door are so angry at him. Get out of here. Stand back with your nonsense judging us on those sliding scales. We as a church, this is why we do not, listen, when we approach culture, when we engage in some of these debates in our culture about righteousness and wickedness, we must take very care that our authority is not in our opinion, but is in God's unchanging, holy nature and character and in his revelation. That we do not make up morality. We do not, we do not get to pick and choose our ethics. We have received the, the nature of justice and righteousness, of truth and of love, from our holy God. And get out of here with these situational ethics that say, well, that is wrong and that is wrong and that is wrong, but I do this that God also calls wrong. And we all do it. And I know we all do it. And I do it. And you do it. We as the church must repent. We need to repent and get our house in order. But what did Jesus say? He says, why do you notice the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Repent. But it doesn't say repent and then never be a prophetic voice again. 
right? He, he doesn't say repent and then never admonish one another, right? He says, first take the log out of your own eye, repent, and then you'll be able to say clear, see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the idea of not that we never judge or we never call unrighteousness what is unrighteousness. It's that as we do so, we, rec- we, don't, we don't do so by making moral compromise. We do so as we ourselves seek repentance. We do so as, as we ourselves are under the gaze of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And so it does no good to say, hey, sinners repent, here's our daughters. And look what happens. We live, when we live in this valley of sin, when we assimilate ourselves so into Sodom, our spiritual warnings are no longer, they're not taken seriously. Would you take it seriously? So Lot goes, the angels say, are there anybody else in the city that you're related to? Go, go, tell, go tell them quickly to get out of the city. Bring them here because we're about to destroy this place because the Lord is about to, uh, the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, Get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to them, to his sons-in-law, to be jesting. Well, duh. He has, he has morally compromised. He's made these integrity. He's sacrificed his integrity all along. He's assimilated into the world of Sodom, accepting its values for 15 years. And then he goes to his sons-in-law and says, hey, hey, get out, the Lord is going to be destroying this place. And they think he is joking. Why would they listen to him? Why would they listen to us? If we don't care enough about getting our own houses in order, if we don't care enough about having the word of God and the spirit of God convict us of our own sin, if we are, we, if we are satisfied enough to be living among the residents of Sodom, to be assimilating their values, why would they listen to us when we speak to them about judgment, about righteousness, about the gospel? Why would they not just say, I've, I've seen your life and I've seen that you seem to not care? about the state of your own soul. So why suddenly are you concerned with mine? So when we live in the valley of sin, our spiritual warnings are not taken seriously. When we live in the valley, we choose the easiest path to minimize consequences. This part is amazing. The morning dawned, the angels heard Lot saying, Get up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16, in contrast to Abram, the man of faith, who when the Lord has talked to things, usually generally Abraham gets up and leaves. Moses puts this about a lot, but he lingered. And so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord, being merciful to him, And they brought him out and set him outside the city. What a picture of God's grace and what a picture of how God works in our life. (laughs) Right? Like, Lot lingers in the city and the angel literally grabs him and drags him out of the city, grabs them, drags them out of the city and it says the Lord being merciful to him. 
This is God's irresistible mercy to effectually save those who linger. Praise God for His grace that when we linger in sin, He, he, he in His wisdom and His kindness and His sovereignty and His mercy and His love grabs those who are the elect and saves them. I, I can think of no other great passage to speak of that doctrine of God's irresistible grace than this. If Lot is a righteous man, as Peter calls him, the only reason Lot is a righteous man is because God's grace has seized him and dragged him out of the city because God is merciful to him. Lot has been content his whole entire life to linger in Sodom. It's not just this morning. It has been his entire life lingering in Sodom. And here the angel grafts him and takes him out and prays the Lord. Praise the Lord when we, or when our family members, or when our sons, or when our daughters, or when our aunts, or when our uncles are living in the valley of sin. Praise God for his persevering grace. Praise God for his irresistible grace to seize and to save. And the angels do this. And then after the angels do this, they, they say it a lot. Five times in these verses they say, escape, escape, escape escape. And what does Lot do? Lot says, they tell him escape to the mountains, and Lot says, oh, that's a little too hard. He says, there's another, there's just a little city over here. How about if I just go over there? I don't, I don't have to go out, like, that, that'll be too destructive, that'll be dangerous for me. Can I, can I just, can I just go over here in the, the city, the, the, the interesting, the, the, the city's name that he moves to is literally called the little one. Like, like, it's not that bad there, right? It's not that bad there. I could go there. Instead of actually escaping sin, escaping the valley of sin, I can just go over here and trifle with this. In, uh, in his book, uh, Satan's Remedy Against, uh, no, sorry, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks writes about this chapter. He says, ah, says Satan as he tempts us. It's, it's just a little pride, a little worldliness, a little uncleanness, a, a little drunkenness, etc. As, as Lot said of Zoar, it is but a little one, and my soul shall live. Alas, says Satan, it is but a very little sin that you stick so at. You may commit it without, without any danger to your soul. It's but a little one. You may commit it, and yet your soul shall live. See, see, when we're living in that valley, when we've assimilated ourselves into the lifestyle of Sodom, when we are living that wayward life, we, it is hard to come to repentance. I remember I was talking to a gentleman. He, uh, he called himself a Christian for decades. Yet, and, and outwardly, he had presented himself as a Christian. Gone to church. Um, but he was an adulterer. He was an alcoholic. He, he, he had a lot of hidden sins. And, um, and I talked to him about repentance for a long time. We talked about repentance. And there's often in his life shifts. Shifts, right? Like shifts. Like I can, I can go from this big sin to this little one. And then my soul will be saved. It will look, it will look outwardly by like repentance. But I said, no, you must repent. You must follow Christ. You must, you must, you must escape. Flee this that is killing you and, and, and sending your soul to hell. Flee it. 
And he said to me once, he said, I do not know what repentance is. And, and I, I thought that was really interesting that, that he actually made that admission. I don't know what it actually looks like to escape the valley of sin. We're going to talk about that at the end of this message. But it, it, what it is not, what it is not, what repentance is not, is trading one sin for another, is minimizing or downplaying sin, is not just shifting our context or our locale. That is not repentance. And although the angel grants Lot's request, we see later in the chapter that Lot actually flees from Zoar as well. He, he comes to realize the danger is there as well. When we live in the valley of sin, we are about a step away from eternal destruction. So moving on in what happens here in verse 23, we actually have here now in the chapter the destruction of Sodom. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities in the valley and the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. This is what Jesus picks up on from this chapter. When Jesus is actually talking about the day of judgment that is to come. When he is warning us about the day of judgment to come. What he actually says is remember Lot's wife. For what does it profit a person who would gain the whole world but lose his soul? He who should find his life will lose it. He should hold on to his life will lose it. And he who seeks to preserve their life will in the process lose everything. As long as the Dead Sea is salty, we are reminded that to forsake the Lord is to reap destruction. Lot's wife was nearly saved, but nearly saved is condemned Nonetheless, let me say that again, nearly saved is condemned nonetheless. She, she was almost out. And I, this, this happens in the church when we're dealing with individuals in the church, when we're dealing with people who once were in the church and are now walking waywardly and assimilating into the land of Sodom. And the, the question arises at times within us, was that person or is that person genuinely saved? Right? Like, were they saved once when they were in among us as Christians, associating with the righteous, and now having walked waywardly, what is their spiritual condition now? And the answer I would give, I, I think I could give from Scripture, is this, I do not know. I believe that God's sovereign and God's irresistible and God's persevering grace they might be Lot, who they, at time, they, 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 God will just seize them and grab them because they, they genuinely were saved, but they are wayward. Or they may be like Lot's wife, who was clinging inwardly to the things of Sodom and was lost. And so, to be honest, I don't know about your wayward son or daughter. I don't know if they are like Lot and who is called righteous and who God might just cling to and seize and bring into the kingdom as though by fire. And I do not know if they are like Lot's wife. What I do know this is that what God has given us as the church are the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the proclamation of the gospel calling everyone to repent. Calling everyone back to Christ, back to salvation, back 
to pursuing the things of God. And so I don't know the difference between Lot and his wife, to be honest, other than God's grace. Remember Lot's wife. And so hear the warning that living in the valley of sin is but a step away, is but a glance back away from destruction. That's a lot, man. This has been harsh, but I want to leave you with something that you don't have to live in the valley of sin. You don't have to live there. If anything I have said today describes a bit of our life, and guess what? It probably describes a bit of all of our lives. You do not have to live in the valley of sin. That is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to live there. Christ can deliver you. And and I get this. There's this story at the end of the chapter, and it's the weirdest story, right? It's it's Lot escapes finally, and they go live in the hills with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. And Jewish tradition believes that Zoar also was swept away in judgment. Maybe a little bit later date. But they see Zoar as one of the five valleys of the cities of the valley that was swept away. And so he's living in the cave with his two daughters. The firstborn says to the younger, Our father's old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let's make our father drink wine. We'll lie with him that we may preserve our offspring from the father. Why in the world would I get from here back to this path of there is hope? The reason is these, these the, the commentaries will say these, these daughters of Lot have completely lost hope. They've completely lost it. Right? If you imagine they're living in this valley, and if you imagine the entire valley, all the cities that they have known, having been consumed by fire, and I have read, and I won't get into all this, I have read something of the geology, something of you know, the history of, of the, that region of the Dead Sea, about the cataclysmic damage and destruction that was caused when the Lord caused sulfur from heaven to rain down. And these girls are sitting there, and they're so, they saw their mom destroyed. They saw their cities destroyed. They saw their engaged, betrothed, you know, the men they were betrothed to destroyed. They saw everything they knew in their life consumed by fire. And what they actually say in the scripture is, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us and to preserve offspring through. Did they literally think that they were the last people alive? It seems that way. That they were completely hopeless, they were completely desperate. Hopeless and desperate people do hopeless and desperate things. Yet Moses, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit to record this chapter for us, reminds us that they have never been alone. Just a few verses before this, Moses reminds us that they are not alone. He he says in, in verse 27, Abram went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up by the smoke of the first like the smoke of a furnace. Moses, in inspiring this chapter, in the midst of this chapter, reminds us that these girls are not alone. That, that, that Abraham, their kinsman, is, is literally standing above them out of the valley searching for signs of life. Remember the chapter before? It's Abraham who's pleading with God if there's any righteous people in that city. Deliver them. And now Abraham goes out in verse 27 and is peering down into the valley. Will there, will there be any who emerge from this valley? 
And had the daughters looked up, had the daughters looked up, they would have seen Abraham, their countrymen, their kinsmen, and all the, you know, all the people of Abraham's household. They would have seen that there was hope and that they were not desperate, that they did not need to resort to this desperate plan that they did. And so I want to leave you with this today. There is hope. There is a way out of the valley. And here is where Abraham stands in this chapter as a type of Christ. Abraham, Jesus Christ, after all, is the offspring of Abraham. And Jesus Christ, after all, is the Redeemer. He is the one to whom salvation can come and bring us and to seize us and to carry us out of the valley of sin. That it is not a hopeless place to be in this valley of sin. There is always stands, there always stands a Redeemer. And so the way out is through, first, the offspring of Abraham. The way out is through the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And so here's what I would say to you. If you are in this valley, if you are in this valley, do not remain there. Do not like Abraham. Don't be like Abraham and say, hey, kid, don't ever start this. Right? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of release. Today can be the day of repentance. Today can be the day of deliverance. I believe that for every single one of you, and I believe that for everyone who is not in this room today, who you are praying for, who you are standing over like Abraham, looking into the valley of their praying over them, praying that someday you may see the signs of You may see the deliverance in your son or your daughter or your cousin or your friend. There is a way back. But the way back is through one way, Jesus Christ. And it is humiliating. It is a way that only comes as God impresses on our heart the true nature of our sin, the true state of our destruction, the true reality of God's wrath and anger against our sin, and the true reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ to deliver us. That, that all of the anger, all of the outpouring of God's wrath, Sodom was but a teaspoon of the anger of God's wrath towards sin, but all of it was poured out on Jesus Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous. All of the anger of God's sin, all of the justice and mercy was revealed at the cross. What that means is you can walk out of the valley freed and delivered. But you got to come through Christ. And that is a difficult thing. Jesus said it's harder for a camel to get through that eye of the needle than for a rich man to find the kingdom of heaven because it means that we acknowledge our sin before a holy God. It means that we humble ourselves, that we cannot deliver ourselves, that we cannot just wash ourselves up, that we cannot just transfer into a little tinier sin. It doesn't work. It means that we have to come and recognize and acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Savior. It means that we actually come to him, bowing our knee before him as our Savior and our Lord. And it means that as he calls us to follow him, that we let go of the things of Sodom that we leave them behind, that we flee from them to flee to our Savior. And that is what repentance is. It's that turning of the heart, turning of the life, 
fleeing to the Savior, escaping of the things of Sodom. And then church, we have to understand it is so hard for this to happen. We need to, we need to be gracious, church. We need to be gracious for those people who are fleeing out of the valley that we don't make it hard for them to return, that we don't, we don't add condemnation, we do not add guilt, we do not add shame to them. We call them back, we pray for them, we stand on the top of the ledge and we look down and we say, please God, may they come back. And, and if you can do one thing to your friend who's walking waywardly, please encourage them. Yes, yes, please warn them, but please encourage them. If you come back, we will love you. We will welcome you. We will celebrate with you. Jesus told the story of the prodigal, right? The whole point of that story is when they find the lost coin, they rejoice. When they find that lost sheep, they rejoice. When they find that lost son, they rejoice. So many people are scared to come back because they think there is only shame and guilt and condemnation that await me at church. And I've talked to those people and I've told you, listen, half of the people at church won't even notice you came back. Most of the other half of the people will just be like, you're back. No questions asked. Hallelujah, you're back. And then there might be that sliver of percent of the people that say, oh, where were you? And guess what? Who cares? Forget those people. Man, church, we, we have such a great call to be the children of Abraham in this, to be the one standing on the ledge looking to see as those people come out of Sodom to pray for them and to welcome them back. 